Welcome to Nevertheless, She Persisted. I'm your host, Sadie. Every Friday, I post interviews about mental health, dialectical behavioral therapy, and teenage life. These episodes break down my mental health journey, teach skills to help you cope with life, and showcase testimonials from teens just like you. Whether you've struggled yourself or just want to improve your mental fitness, this podcast is your inspiration to live a life you love and keep persisting. Happy Friday, everyone. So I'm back, and it's just me this week because I'm doing my first ever Q&A episode. Guys, this has been a dream since I started the podcast. I've always wanted people to ask questions and ask for advice so that episodes were exactly what you guys needed and what you wanted and really just catered to you. So I have a bunch of questions that I've compiled from Instagram and my website, and I harassed all my friends to ask me questions. So we have a lot to work with this week, and I'm so excited. So let's get into it. The first question I got on Instagram was, what was the main goal of making your podcast? So it definitely has changed over time. If you've listened to all my episodes, you know that I went to McLean Hospital during my freshman year to get residential treatment. When I got there and when I first arrived, my dad was like, Sadie, you've got to record every day. You've got to tell your story as you're going through it. How cool is it that you, a teenage girl, are going through this? You can share it with people. Like, this is an awesome opportunity. And I was like, Dad, no. Like, I'm not recording in an audio file, my struggles and my suffering, and I was just so angry at the world. So it was the last thing I could possibly fathom. Flash forward a year and a half, I was at a therapeutic boarding school in Montana, and I was like, holy crap, like, I'm happy. I have relationships that I love, and I'm doing good. This is what people talk about when they say they love life. They look forward to things. And I realized that I was living this dream that I'd have for so long, which was to be happy and to wake up every day and want to live my life. And so... I was like, okay, maybe he's onto something. Maybe others could benefit from this. Maybe I should share my story. So I podcasting is still something you don't see a lot of teenagers doing. You see tons of teenagers doing vlogs for YouTube, Instagram, all of that kind of stuff. But as far as podcasters that really stick to it, there's not a ton. So I was like, this is, yes, a very unique medium and it's totally something new. I guess I'll try it. So at first I just remembered looking back when I was suffering from depression. I was one of those people that hit it very well. I was still doing pretty well in school before it got bad. And I felt like no one noticed that I was struggling. So the goal of the podcast initially was to paint this picture of what suffering looks like. What does mental illness look like? And I did that by interviewing my therapist, my parents, my friends, my family members, everyone that was around me when I was struggling to get their point of view of what I looked like when I was at my lowest so that other people could be like, hey, I see that girl staying in her room all the time. Hey, I've seen that behavior of slacking on schoolwork or not sleeping. What can I do to support that person? And it has shifted away from that. After probably seven episodes, maybe, I kind of got bored of it. You can only hear your own story so many times. I wanted something different. And I started having guests on the podcast. I did one collab with Lisa from the Lisa Rands podcast. And that was the first time I'd ever collabed with someone who I didn't know personally and who had another podcast. And I thought it was such a great conversation, such a great episode. I'll link it in today's notes. But I heard her story and she was like, whoa, this is really cool what you're doing. And I was like, this is what I want. I want these other people who can share their stories, who've been through it too, and can be that inspiration for listeners to live their life worth living. I wanted more experts on here to teach you guys what to do. I wanted more DBT skills taught in episodes because that's what saved my life. And so now it's kind of a balance of 
the reminder that someone has been there too, which is me coming on here saying my story bits and pieces. It's interviews with others to inspire and remind you to keep persisting. And it's education. It's experts. It's DBT education episodes. It's resources. And so now it's a balance of all that. And it's also a place for teenagers to come on and share their stories and talk about what they've been through. So that is the goal of making my podcast is to partially let you know that you're not alone and also educate. Next question podcasting sound quality, like the title, podcasting sound quality. Anchor is great for pods, but how did you learn everything about microphones and other technology? Your podcast seems to have much better quality and I love it. Thank you, first of all. Yeah, so Anchor is great for distributing your episodes to all platforms. If you listen to the podcast, you hear my little ad that I do and they have that as an option too. You can do sponsorships, which is amazing. And so all you have to do is upload your episode to one website and they will distribute it to Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Google Play. So agreed, Anchor is great for that. It has definitely been a learning curve as far as sound quality and audio equipment and editing. So whenever I tell people to listen to the podcast, I say listen to my new episodes because I've gotten better at it. So first and foremost, be kind to yourself. It takes a long time to kind of get an idea of how to edit, what's effective, and I'm still not totally there yet. As far as actual technology and equipment, so I began recording episodes on an iPod Touch, yes, an iPod Touch, Um, and this was when I was at boarding school, so we couldn't have computers, we couldn't have phones, and so I had this little iPod Touch that had my music on it, and I could take voice memos, and then I would use iMovie to clip them and sync them together. Super ineffective, not much detail as far as where you could clip and combine audio quality was horrible, but that was where I started. After that, I had one of those handheld Zoom recorders that is probably what, like, two and a half by four or five inches. And it has the, you can put a little tripod on the bottom with the bendy legs and you can sit it on the table in front of three or four people and kind of catch all of their audio. That was okay. Again, not great audio quality, but it was such a step up from the phone audio or the um, iPod touch. And at that point I was still using iMovie. I was doing it on computer, but I was like splitting the clip and merging them together. You couldn't even see like a sound bar as far as like how loud it was at certain points. All it was just was just me listening, clipping and merging. So after that, now I use these microphones. Let me look at the back. They are Shure microphones, S-H-U-R-E, and I have this little setup. I'll post a photo on Instagram, but it's the Cloud Microphone Cloudifier, Cloud Lifter, Cloud Lifter 2 Mic Activator, um, Shure microphones with little tripods, and then a Zoom audio recorder. And so the microphone has a cable that goes into the cloud lifter, which goes into the Zoom recorder, which takes the recording. And so I have two sets of microphones, so I can have another guest on here if we're both in person. And this has phenomenal audio quality, guys. Such a step up. I'm lucky enough to be able to borrow these from my dad every week to use for this podcast. And so if you're looking for some great audio equipment, I cannot recommend these enough, and they'll be in today's episode notes. As far as editing, so I use a combination of Adobe Audition and Descript. Adobe Audition I use for kind of fixing any background noise, any standout bits where I like get off topic, anything like that, audio adjustments, smoothing, anything like that, I use Adobe Audition. And if you just Google what you're trying to do, like get rid of Echo on Adobe Audition, X, Y, and Z on YouTube, such great videos on how to do that. I I wouldn't teach you because I'm still not great myself, but Adobe Audition is great for audio editing. And you can also merge files. So you can have multiple voice tracks and music and sound effects, and then you can all export it as one, say, MP3 or WAV file. And then I use Descript, which 
when I started podcasting and talking to other podcasters, the idea came into play where you could edit your podcast based off of a, a transcription, like on a screen with like the words of what you're saying. And I was like, that sounds so ineffective. Why would I want to read it? I can just listen, but it's so helpful, you guys, if you can read the words and cut out at one time. So Descript, love that. Highly recommend for grabbing bits and pieces. Highly recommend for grabbing pull quotes and important parts of the episode. Descript is great for that. Again, you can also export the transcription for using for videos, for promotion, all of that kind of stuff. So now I stick with this set of Zoom, Cloudlifter, and Sure microphones and use Adobe Audition and Descript and still put out all my episodes on Anchor. Sorry, that was kind of a long answer, but that's what I do. And all of my and all of my editing software and audio equipment will be linked in today's episode notes if you are interested. Oh, and then I use just old Beats headphones I have and then earbuds. Oh, and then as far as Zoom recording. So I have a lot of guests that I haven't met before or that live in another state. And especially now during quarantine, people that I just can't be around in person. So as far as getting good audio quality on the phone, the key is to not use to not use phone audio. So if you're on the phone, you're not going to want to record what comes out of the speakerphone. What you want to do is set up a Zoom call so you can see the person, talk face to face, have a more personal connection. And you want to both record the audio on either side. So even when you're on a Zoom recording, the internet will still go in and out. You get patchy sounds. I'm sure you've heard it on some of my episodes or from other podcasts when they have virtual guests. So what I do is I have myself wear headphones and I record on my microphones and I have the other person wear headphones and you record on your phone and you do a voice memo. And that way you each record your side of the audio and then you can lay it on top of each other in editing. And so it's clean audio on both ends, no internet interruptions, and it's easy to edit. So that is what I do for Zoom calls. And yeah, so you don't need high-end audio equipment. You can start with anything. I started with iMovie and iPod Touch, so you can start wherever. And I still use Anchor to release all my episodes, and I love it. So I will link all of my audio equipment and editing services that I use in today's episode notes if you're interested. The next question is, what is something you are most passionate about right now? Okay, so you can probably tell because I just went on rant for it for like 20 minutes now, but podcasting. This is what I've been spending all of my time doing during quarantine. I get so excited hopping on to record these episodes. I just get so fulfilled when I hear other people's stories and interviews. I love editing these episodes. I love recording them. I love releasing them. I love promoting them. I love making videos to put on Instagram. Like this is what I'm so passionate about right now. And it's a twofold passion. It partially is it's about what I'm talking about, which is mental health and especially teen mental health and what I went through personally. And it's also just the graphics and the audio editing and the video editing. Those are things that I've always liked. And it's just so cool to be able to do that for myself now. So my biggest passion at the moment is podcasting and everything that comes along with that. The next question is how can you support slash help a friend who's struggling with depression or any mental illnesses. So the first thing I would say to you is validate. And if you don't know what validation is, I'll link an episode where I break it down in great depth. But basically validating is the idea that you can let someone know you see them, you hear them, you appreciate them, you see their suffering, you see their point of view, and yet you don't have to agree with them. But it's saying you're giving you're giving them space for their emotional experience and what they're going through. So that is what validation is. And the rest of my advice is that Treat them as you would treat them normally. Don't treat them differently. In my experience, when you're coddling someone for their depression or their anxiety, and when you're around them, like, oh, is this okay? How are you doing today? How can I support you? What can I do? It's 
your relationship is not only surrounded by their mental health issues, but they will go to you solely for support. And so if you are a friend that can be there no matter what their mood is to offer them a laugh or a good time or support or just be a light in their life, like that is such an amazing feeling to know like, hey, I have people I can go to no matter what kind of day I'm having and they can put a smile on my face. Like personally, like those are the friends I value the most. And of course, of course, of course, if they're struggling, listen to them. Be there as a shoulder to cry on. Be there as a support. Let them know that it, you know it sucks and you're here and you're sorry and listen, listen, listen. But really, really treat them as you would treat them normally. Be their friend and don't become their mental health treatment coordinator. Don't take on their struggles, but be just that. Be a friend, be a support, be a listener, validate. And then my last piece of advice for you is to work on your own mental health first. If you are also struggling, you're not going to be able to be a good friend to them. You're not going to be able to offer your best advice or support or make them laugh or have a good day. And so if you can truly take care of yourself, you will be offering the best version of yourself to other people when they need support. So first and foremost, work on your own mental health. The next question is similar, but it's how to support a friend that you aren't really close to. And this is a tough one, but I'm going to answer this in two ways. The first being if this person comes to you um, and is like, hey, I'm struggling. I'm not doing well. My mental health isn't great. Or second, if they don't come to you, but you can see things aren't going well. You see signs of some unhealthy behavior. Just you observe that someone's struggling, but they haven't come to you and you don't know them really well. So if they come to you, they bring up to you that they're struggling. Similar to the last question, you're going to want to listen, you're going to want to validate, and you're going to want to let them know that you're there if they need you. And you don't want to impose on your life. You don't want to be like, hey, I'm coming over today to cry about whatever's going on because you don't have that relationship built. But you're there. You're giving them space if they need it. And if they come to you, you'll be there to support them. And like I said last one, take care of your own mental health. So you don't want to become too involved with their struggles where you sacrifice own, your own parts of your life and your anxiety and your fear and all of that comes from what they're going through. But again, be there if they need you. Be that space. Be that validation. Be that listener. So if they're struggling, when they're struggling, you are there to help. So the second situation was if you see someone struggling and you don't know what to do, but they haven't necessarily approached you. And in my experience, if someone is struggling, their friends do know, their friends have noticed. If you are around them and you've noticed, their friends who spend more time around them probably have noticed as well. So why wouldn't go to the friends about it and be like, hey, I noticed this behavior, this person seems really sad, are they okay? Because if they're good friends, they will know that something is up. So I would say that that's not worth it. But what I would say is talk to an adult and maybe it's your parent, a teacher, a school counselor, etc. And it's not to get them involved in what's going on. Maybe you don't even need to give them a name or specifics, but it's always nice to have someone check your thought process. So you could also go to a friend for this, but if it's an adult, you don't have to put this burden on other people and especially teenagers. I like to be very cautious about that. So when my friends come to me and are like, oh my God, this is such an issue, I will bounce it off my parents vaguely. I'll be like, hey, this person is struggling with this. Like, what would you do? Or like, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? And of course, take it with a grain of salt. My parents sometimes will go way overboard with the with being concerned about them as some adults will do. But it's nice to have someone there that is aware of the situation and that you can just check your level of concern on. And they can be like, hey, you're getting way too worried about this person looking down at lunch. Or yeah, that does seem like an issue. Maybe we should take another step on this. So have someone to bounce that idea off of, check your level of concern, and be there as your support system. 
And if it's a safety issue, the adult can manage that. They can move forward with that, um, especially because you're not close to that person. So it wouldn't be your place in that relationship. But again, having someone that can check your level of concern from a logical place is always helpful. So if they come to you, offer validation concern. If they don't come to you, check your level of concern against someone that you trust and then move forward with it however you guys deem necessary. Are you interested in making your own podcast too? Download Anchor. I released every episode of Nevertheless She Persisted through Anchor and I love it. It's free, you can edit and publish your episodes from anywhere, and they put my podcast on every listening platform like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google. I definitely recommend it. They also have cool background musics, transition musics, and you can record sponsorships like this one. Be sure to check it out. It has everything you need for your podcast. Download the free Anchor app in the App Store or wherever you get your apps or go to anchor.fm to get started. Again, that's anchor.fm. The next question is, how do you think being a kid or teenager impacts your mental health differently than being an adult? Okay, so I loved this question. Such a great question. And the way I think about it is when you are a kid, we know the brain is constantly changing until you're over 18. We know that you're constantly adapting, you're absorbing, your values are changing, your opinions are changing, you are more emotionally vulnerable, you have all this stuff going on that just makes you really freaking susceptible to mental health issues. These really strong emotions, the fact that you are constantly evolving and you have so much influence being put on you, it does open you up to get a lot more hurt and your support system isn't fully established or if it is, it's not all necessarily established by you because you still have parents and teachers and these people in your life that are that are there for a good reason to offer support and education and guidance, but it's also not something that you've done yourself and so you don't f- you might not have complete confidence on it because you haven't done it on your own. Whereas when you're an adult, you, for better or worse, are having your own support system. You make your own decisions and you own the grunt of your own consequences. So as a kid, I would say you're just more susceptible to mental health issues. You're experiencing more emotions biologically. There's more influence being thrown at you. You're constantly changing. And so it's just easier to be affected by negative beliefs or feelings of depression or anxiety and all of that. So I'd say you're more susceptible to it as a kid than you are as an adult. And again, when you think about an adult, they're a lot more independent. Maybe they're living alone. It's easier for mental health issues to go unnoticed or progressively get a lot worse. And so that can be another way, another con, another difficulty of struggling as an adult. And this is why you don't grow out of mental illness or mental health struggles. Maintaining your mental health is a lifelong process because it's never ends and it's constantly changing. So whether you're a kid or an adult, we have to pay attention to our mental fitness. My personal opinion is just that when you are a kid, you are more susceptible to the things that characterize a lot of mental health issues. Next question is what are your favorite simple on-the-spot coping mechanisms when something unexpected happens or you can't cope ahead? So I'm assuming this question is if you're in a situation that you can't get out of. Maybe you're in a class at school. Maybe you're at a dinner. Maybe you're about to give a speech. Something like that where you can't leave the situation. So the first one, deep breathing. Take some deep breaths. My favorite is having your exhale count be longer than your inhale count. And it depends on your lung size or how fast you count. But for me, it's inhale, one, two, hold, exhale, one, two, three. And so it's just one count longer exhale than inhale. And so... When I do this, I try to have good posture and I close my eyes so I can really channel my inner Buddha and calm 
and really block everything out just to be just focus on my breathing and try and decrease anxiety. The second thing that helps when I'm freaking out is talking to yourself. And I know that might sound a little crazy, but when I'm having anxiety or when I'm nervous, I talk to myself. And it's not just an inner monologue, but I'm like, okay, Sadie, we're going to breathe. We're going to take a minute. We got this. We're going back into the situation and stuff like that. So maybe it's weird, whatever. It's validating and it also helps me get my, it also helps me get my thoughts together what plan I'm going to make? How am I going to cope with this? What is my next step? Is it going and giving the speech or is it saying, hey, I need a minute? So it's just when I talk to myself, it's slower than my actual thoughts are going. So I find that to be effective. An example, so like right now I'm learning how to drive and I'm constantly like, oh my God, oh my God, what am I going to do? Okay, Sadie, turn signal, look everywhere, let's breathe. So stuff like that, it just slows you down. And again, it's validating. And to each their own. Maybe I'm the only person in the world that does this, but that is something that for me is very helpful. So the next one is drinking water. It's super, super helpful. It's cool. It can calm you. It's focusing on something else. And if you can, always go to the bathroom and take a minute for yourself. That is a safe place when you're freaking out is to go to the bathroom just to sit there breathe, be away from the situation, be in quiet for a moment. And so that's something I really recommend. Other great things are fidgets, tapping. There's this thing where you tap like one, two, one, two, one, two on opposite sides of your body. So like my right hand is hitting my right thigh and my left hand is hitting my left thigh. So it's one right, two left. And you're using opposite hands and you're stimulating both sides of your brain. And so it just breaks up that circuit of anxiety and fear. I also love blasting music and headphones, um, not too loud, don't damage your hearing, but just to kind of, again, break that circuit of that thought process, have something to focus on that's bigger than the anxiety, and that invokes a different emotion. So the last one um, I'm going to offer does require a bathroom and a break from the situation, but if you can, it is so helpful. So this is called the tip scale, it's from DBT, and we're specifically going to talk about the T for temperature, and it's all I'm going to go over today. But you want to put water as cold as possible, so ice if preferable, either on your wrists, under your eyes, or on the back of your neck. What this does is stimulates the vagus nerve, and the vagus nerve is connected to your mammalian diving reflex. And so mammals are made that when you dive into a cold body of water, your body assumes that you're going to be underwater and not have access to oxygen. So if your heart is beating really quickly, you're going to produce more carbon dioxide and sooner or later, you're going to have too much carbon dioxide to function because you're still underwater and you can't get more air. I don't, I learned this a while ago, but I thought it was so crazy that when you suffocate, it's not a lack of oxygen, it's an excess of carbon dioxide in your body. So your body tries to prevent this. It tries to prevent this excess of carbon dioxide. So your heart rate slows down when you come into contact with cold water. Because if you're going for a swim, like you're a freaking penguin or something, your body doesn't want to have that excess. So when you put cold water on your wrist, the back of your neck, or underneath your eyes, your heart rate will physiologically slow down and you will calm down because your body cannot maintain that heart rate and that level of oxygen intake without having excess carbon dioxide typically. So that is the last skill. Again, it requires more tools and more supplies. And if you're sitting at a family dinner, like that's not going to work, but it is a great one. The next question, what's one relationship you've had to reevaluate and rebuild since coming out of McLean and therapeutic boarding school, i.e. relationship with your family, friends, teachers, etc.? How did you work on rebuilding those relationships? So 
the biggest relationship by far that I had to rebuild was with my parents. And like I've talked about in past episode, like I've talked about in past episodes, my relationship with my parents was a really rocky one. And as I've also talked about in past episodes, I didn't experience a trauma or a loss or anything that typically can cause depression. So I just experienced this low mood that just grew and grew and grew over time and this sadness that kind of consumed my life, but there wasn't a cause for it. And so I I blamed my parents for that suffering. And in my mind, when I thought through it, I said, hey, they raised me into the person I was. They made most of the decisions in my life up to this point. So it must be their fault that I'm so miserable because I was, again, seventh grade, eighth grade. That was the way I thought through it. And I wanted to put this blame for all this suffering somewhere. And so I put it on them. And I can now tell you this was so, so, so not the case. Mom and dad, if you're listening, I'm so sorry. So that was a relationship that I definitely had to do some rehabilitation on. And it became very clear to me over time that if I didn't do that, I would never graduate treatment and I would never come live at home because having that relationship with my parents was crucial to my functioning. So this relationship repair, I guess you could call it, started with actually building a foundational relationship with my parents. So I had to spend time with them. I had to talk to them. I had to let them know that I wasn't okay. We had to interact with each other and interact effectively. And shockingly enough, this was something we had not been doing. So this was a shift we had to make. And so this started, and so again, this was the foundation. And from there we worked through and processed what had gone wrong when I was at home. So anything that we were holding grudges on, we talked about in therapy. And this literally took over a year of weekly family therapy sessions. And this was not a short process, I can tell you that. But it was very, it was necessary. If we were holding on these grudges about past arguments we'd had or past interactions, we would never be able to get to a place where we could have a healthy relationship. So the last thing that we had to do was really build trust. And that meant that they knew I would be safe. They knew I would tell them when I wasn't doing okay. And they knew that I would be honest with them. And so when I came home from therapeutic boarding school, it really did take a long time to adjust and a long time for my parents to do things like go out with friends or drive with them because they were used to having this kid who didn't know how to function or cope. And so it it was a huge mindset shift for all of us. So that honesty took a long time. But big picture, rebuilding that relationship, like I just said, meant creating the foundation of connection, undoing the damage, and then building trust. And so at this point, I'm super happy with my relationship with my parents. I love them more than anything in the world. And so that is such, such progress from that point where I hated them more than anything. So yeah, big picture, that was the relationship that required the most, the most work. The last question I have for today is how did you deal with the transition from residential to regular school? What were the most difficult parts and how did you deal with them? So I left for residential treatment in Boston February of my freshman year and I moved home a week before my junior year began. So I really was gone for a long time and now for senior year next year and for this past year junior year I went to a public school so academically it was really really different freshman year I went to a private school and it was pretty different there weren't really there weren't grades you didn't have that many tests and so prior to this year junior year where I'm at public school I had never had to study for a test or really take notes or read a textbook or do a ton of homework and so that academic shift was really, really difficult to understand for a while. And when I came home, I went to a new school and I didn't know anyone there, but I was lucky that I had friends at home. So I had people to hang out with after school and on the weekends and talk to. So it wasn't like I was 
moving to a new town or a new city. I was coming home and just attending a different school. As far as the most difficult parts, one of it was definitely getting privileges from my parents because like I said to the last question, it took so long to build that trust. Adjusting to academics, like I mentioned, was also really different. And the final thing was accepting that my life wasn't going to be like everyone else's was right off the bat. I was coming out of a year and a half of intensive treatment. I had struggled for a really long time with depression and anxiety. And so my parents were worried about me just living at home for the first time. They weren't worried about, can I go hang out with friends after school? Can I drive with this person? Like that's not what they were focused on. So I had to really accept that, hey, my life isn't gonna look like these people and for good reason. But that was hard. That was really, really hard for me to accept and understand that it would take time for that shift to occur. But my biggest takeaway from all of that was to ask for help. And for academics, that meant asking my teachers, like, how do I study for this test? Or asking friends, hey, how do you take notes for this? What's effective? Because I just didn't have those skills. Or asking my parents, how can I get these privileges that I want? What can I do to work towards that? And so asking others what to do when I didn't know how to get things that I wanted wanted or that I wanted in my life. And those things, like all these tests and these privileges that felt so unfair and like that disconnected me from my peers, it felt really unmanageable. But when other people were offering that support, when I offered them help, and when I told them that I wasn't sure how to, how to navigate that, that was really, really effective in helping me feel like I wasn't alone. So that was my biggest takeaway. So that's the last question I have for today, you guys. Thank you so, so, so much to everyone who sent in questions. I think I'll definitely do this again. So let me know on Instagram if you liked it and leave a review on Apple Podcasts as well if you love this episode. If you have a question for next time, all of the information on how to submit is in today's episode notes. But basically, you can email me, submit anonymously, DM me, or anything else. There's so many options. So thank you again for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I will talk to you next week. Bye. If you enjoyed this week's episode of Nevertheless, She Persisted, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share with your friends and family. To stay updated on new episodes dropping and bonus content, follow Nevertheless, She Persisted on social media. Instagram at She Persisted Podcast, Twitter at Persist Podcast, Facebook at Nevertheless, She Persisted Podcast with Sadie Sutton, and check out my website, ShePersistedPodcast.com. And don't worry, all of these are linked in today's episode notes. Don't forget to subscribe, and I'll see you next Friday.